Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The evolution of consumer technology means we are in an increasingly connected world of devices and applications that are being used by consumers worldwide. We see more of our government and business interactions, as well as much of our daily lives, are reliant on devices and our connections to the internet. Along with this incredible access comes the need for more security for our networks and our devices. I recently had the opportunity to discuss what it takes for our leaders to stay on top of our global technology challenges and the economic impact that our connections have on a global scale. I recently interviewed former National Security Advisor Ambassador Robert O'Brien. The ambassador and I discuss how often geopolitical power is developed when communications technology is widely adopted as part of the investment in a country's infrastructure. This is why the security of network operations and consumer devices become a constant challenge to our nation's leaders that they have to reckon with. Ambassador O'Brien has spent much of his time examining where the United States stands in the tech race, how our adversaries are increasingly using technology through the lens of national security, including promoting digital authoritarianism. Ambassador O'Brien is recognized as one of America's former leading diplomats and national security experts. He has held multiple diplomatic posts, including Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs in the State Department and in his most recent service as the 27th National Security Advisor to the President. O'Brien was the founding co-chairman of the State Department's Public-Private Partnership for Justice Reform in Afghanistan, serving both Secretaries Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Rodham Clinton. Earlier in his career, O'Brien was a senior legal officer at the United Nations Security Council and a major in the U.S. Army Reserve JAG Corps. Ambassador O'Brien joins me today to discuss the domestic and international challenges we have before us and how we can best protect our networks and our technology assets. Ambassador O'Brien, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I focus on the intersection between technology and public policy. So when I got the opportunity to have you on, I was so excited because you've spent a tremendous amount of time uh, working in both the military, the State Department, the United Nations, and most recently as the assistant to the president for national security affairs, which is in no way a, a, you know, a light lift. So you've seen the evolution of technology globally over the many years that you've been re- representing the United States, both in you know, your public capacity, as well as I know you've done some work in the, in the private sector as you're doing right now. So let's start the discussion on how you've seen the difference, because there's really, and I know I notice it, so I'm curious to see on the diplomatic, economic, and national security challenges we have around technology. And I know CHIPS has been a real big discussion now, but we've seen the evolution over the years and the role of technology. And so as a key leader in our diplomatic discussions, can you just kind of tell us how you've seen this go? Sure, Shane, and thanks. Thanks for having me with you. It's a pleasure to be with AEI and with, with you personally. So it's uh, it's nice to spend some time this morning with you and, and talking about these important issues. I, I think what we thought was going to happen over over the years is that as technology became diffused, as we got products, software, hardware to places like Russia and China and Iran, that the the it would lead to more freedom, more free expression. Uh, we thought the internet would. Uh, would be more like it is here. And unfortunately, what we've seen is that those authoritarian regimes have used that technology to, to suppress their people, to have total surveillance societies, but they've also used it to, against us. So they've, they've increased their, their, the complexity of their military systems and platforms and, 
uh, to a point where they're rivaling ours. And, uh, uh, you know, if we don't keep our technological edge as a nation, uh, we're going to have real trouble. So one of the big questions uh, this last couple of years in Washington that you know evolved around the CHIPS uh, legislation was the whole idea of onshoring back to the United States. And uh, as somebody who's done a lot of work on the strategic you know, national security front, how are we doing on that? Do you think that the CHIPS Act is, is helping guide us into the right direction? I, I think it is. Look, I, I'm a free marketeer. I'm a Republican. I, you know, it's always been free markets and free men and women and free trade. Uh, you know, my whole life, and I and I believe in those principles. But we've got to take those principles and see how they're applied in reality. And we were so concerned about efficiency and about saving money and about reducing the price of of computers and phones and that sort of thing that we allowed our national security to be affected. And so what we did is we exported our manufacturing capability to China for the most part, other countries as well, but primarily to China. Uh, and, and we put ourselves in a position where we were totally reliant on the Communist Party of China for our supply chain. And we saw that it really manifest itself at the outset of COVID, where the Chinese were using PPE and medical devices, uh, pharmaceutical uh, components, um, precursors, uh, and, uh, and the like test, testing capability. Uh, as a leverage diplomatically to to gain their will, not not just against the United States, but against smaller countries all over the world. And I think we realize that we can't put ourselves in a position, especially when it comes to chips, which you know power all our cars and our not, you know our our microwaves and our dishwashers, not to mention our military equipment. We can't be reliant on the the Communist Party of China for our supply of of chips. We've got to bring that manufacturing home. And again, you know, when it was done under multiple administrations, Republicans and Democrats. The idea was that China was going to become more like us. They're going to become more liberal, more, more democratic, uh, and we we leverage each other's advantage, our innovation and and research and development and Chinese manufacturing, and it would be good for the world. But what we've seen is over this, as China's become richer, they haven't become more democratic or more liberal. They become more illiberal, more authoritarian, more more totalitarian, and they've established a total surveillance society in China, and they'd like to export that you know, worldwide, including the United States. And so our, our very way of life is threatened. And if we don't get our, if we don't re- return to being able to manufacture the products that we need and that our partners need, uh, we're going to be, you know, critically dependent on, a, on an adversary that, you know, seeks to, to change the world order and seeks to do- dominate our way of life. And, and so that, that's, that's why I came out and supported the CHIPS Act, which, you know, normally, uh, you know, for, for most of my life, I wouldn't have been in favor of what's called, you know, industrial policy, but, We've got to do something to encourage our, our manufacturers to come back to America. I am 100% with you. I actually did a discussion about this in The Hague last week, and I read one of my colleagues, uh, Chris Miller, just wrote a book called Chip Wars, and it it was a it's a fantastic read. Really, you learn a lot about the history, but also the, the reasoning around a lot of things, and you also – realize we're the only ones that didn't have the industrial policy that didn't have the major government funding. I mean, early on, you might think in the DARPA years, but everybody else has really been supported. You know, the Taiwanese and the Chinese and, and you know, well, Singapore and uh, Korea, it, their own governments have been the ones that have really been promoting them being s- such foot forward in this area. So it is it is a time where you have to be like, I'm a free marketer, but I also understand that sometimes you need to use the levers and the tools that you have to get back, make sure we're in the right part of the game. No, we've even um, seen things like shipbuilding. You know, we you know yeah. we, we went from being the world's leader in shipbuilding for many many years. I was just on the USS Iowa the other night, and uh, you know we built the Iowa in two years. It's a it's a marvel of engineering. We did it back in in the, in the middle of the World War in uh, in, in 1942 through 44. 
we could, it would take us 20 years to build the Iowa today because we've lost so much capacity and, and, and not, not just the shipyards themselves, but the welders and the, the, yeah, the labor, the, the, the men and women that had the, may, may not have gone to college, but had the STEM background to understand how things work and how to put things together and, and how to build things. And we, we've lost a lot of that. And we need to bring it back to this country and we need to do it quickly. Yeah. And the education component is sort of an understated part that was in the CHIPS Act as well, uh, you know, that it takes about 10 years to really train a semiconductor engineer. And if you are an engineer, you you want to go become a developer of an app. It's like almost instant gratification <laughs> and getting right. these guys to say, OK, I'm going to take a longer term, but this is really important. It's a value, you know, part of our future is something we haven't you know, given them the interest of investing in. So hopefully we're giving them some incentive in that space. No, and, and Shane, you're 100 percent right, because what we need to do is we need and we need to start in the junior high and the high schools and and push that, that kind of, and, and, and figure out, you know, not, not everyone. I look, I've got a liberal arts education and uh, you know, I, I jokingly would tell people when I was getting briefed on these complex matters that the, the last science class I took was chemistry at Colonel Newman high school as a junior. And, uh, and my science degree was political science. So, you know, dumb it down for me, but uh, you know, not, not every kid wants a liberal arts education and, and a lot of them can make great money and, and be very successful and contribute to the, the, the country and to the, the military or the industry by you know, learning vocational skills. And we've got to figure out how to, you know, increase our ability to, to have apprentices and apprenticeships and, and, and train people the way they they're, they're trained in Japan and Germany and Switzerland and other countries that have star manufacturing bases. Yeah. I, I hope, I think we're turning a corner on that. I'm, I'm very hopeful. You recently gave a speech um, on the use of social media and um, how it's used by our adversaries. And you used the phrase instrument of national power, which is, seems really strong. Um, so can you walk us through your concerns? Because that is one of the parts of technology where I feel like we have we unleashed something amazing in social media and it is coming back at us in a way that we were not expecting. Right. And again, I'm not against social media. I think there's a, there are wonderful advantages and collaborations and, and the dissemination of information that takes place in social media that can be terrific. But let, let's start with our adversaries. Uh, you know, most of our adversaries don't allow social media. China doesn't allow Twitter and Facebook and, uh, and Google in, in China for the most part. And even if you have a VPN and, uh, and yet TikTok is readily available here. And if you look at the algorithms that TikTok uses in America, they're algorithms that are used to divide our people and then to promote behavior that the Chinese think is, you know, alcoholism or drug use or that sort of thing. Whereas in, in China, TikTok focuses on the algorithms focus on people who win math competitions and, uh, and are doing well in school and, and things. So, so there's a, there's a, an, an overall effort to use some of these tools to, to weaken American society and to, to, you know, sap our will. But then there's also the, the Russians have done this, the Chinese have done it massively, the, the, the Iranians have gotten involved in it, and that's using social media to, to divide Americans. So putting disinformation out on there or, or trolling people with uh, bot farms and, uh, and trying to stoke the, the, the divisions in America. And then, you know, maybe the last point I'll make and, and turn it back over to you, Shane, is that there's been a lot of very dangerous information that's coming out on TikTok. And, and we saw some of this uh, when I was in office, a lot of it's not public. So I'll only talk about the public information, but there was a story that I retweeted uh, the other day that, that it confirmed that the TikTok is, is able to geolocate anyone and they'll turn that information over to the Chinese government. And so the idea that an app that's become ubiquitous is, and that a lot of kids and a lot of our, a lot of young people in our military like TikTok, and it's an interesting product, and they 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 hook people on it. 
you know, they, the, the Chinese can find and fix, you know, everybody who's using it. So heaven forbid, if there was an outbreak of a war, uh, the Chinese would know where a lot of our aviators are. They, they know where a lot of our surface warfare officers are. They know where a lot of our U.S. officials are. Anyone who's on TikTok, they're going to know exactly where they are. They could, and, and you know, you might, they, they might, you know, be able to finish, which is a, a sanitary way of saying, you know, killing or, 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 you know, beating us on the battlefield with taking out our pilots before they could ever get their planes. And so it's extraordinarily uh, worrisome. It's something we were worried about in the cold war, especially with our pilots and, uh, and, and senior officers who were stationed in Europe, the, the Russians would have plans to go after them. Well, we're voluntarily giving it better information than any KGB operation could have ever gotten uh, to, to, the, to our adversary on where our, our key people are if they use these Chinese social media apps. I mean, it's, it's extraordinarily concerning. That's a really good point because the other side of the kind of physical security equation is always the vulnerability of the user and their behavior and how um, many of the malware exploits that, that are put onto devices are just waiting for the user who willingly surrenders access to their device and this information. And I think the Ukraine war has, they've had some kind of anecdotal stories on things that have happened there that at least now people start to understand the importance of the information flow that's coming off their device. Um, it's kind of amazing that they, I guess when you're in space, you know, these things happen that people just don't think about where all that information flows and who has access to it. No, and even, even the use of the, the audio and the cameras on the, the devices, it's, it's something that's a huge OPSEC operational security concern for, for us, our military. And the idea that, you know, we, in the, at the end of the administration, we tried to, to ban TikTok, uh, the president signed in order to do so. The Indians have banned TikTok and 400 other apps uh, from China understanding the danger it poses to the, to the state of India uh, from a national security standpoint. And, and yet we can't do it here. It's, it's quite amazing. So let's move over to the importance of cybersecurity to both our economy and national security. So how do we keep our guard up as users of tech from these type of cyber exploits we're talking about? So it's a great question, Shane. And, and I wish the government could do more, but yeah, you know, when you think about how diffuse our systems are, you know, there's not just one the cyber defense software that, that everyone uses. It can be updated regularly. The government doesn't control everyone's computers. I mean, the, the, the number of networks in America, every company, every nonprofit, every NGO, every state government, every local government, the federal government, and the agencies within the federal government, so they all have, almost all have incompatible and different networks. So there's no, there's no easy way to push a button here to, to fix you know, our, our cybersecurity. And so what we have to do is we have to rely on people and everyday Americans. And it goes down to, to it comes out to cyber hygiene. Like don't click on, you know, when you, when you get something from Amazon that says Jeff Bezos has selected you for a thousand dollar gift card, Jeff Bezos is a thousand dollar gift card. When you click right. on that, you're going to get malware or spyware or something in your system. Now, the problem is so many people use their phones for, for, for so much computing. I mean, we all do it with our work and and that sort of thing. If you're if you're an employee of a company, even if it's on your private phone, and you've now just you know downloaded your thousand dollar gift card from Jeff Bezos, uh, and, and the malware is in your phone, that can quickly jump to your your company's network. Now that the adversary has access to the, the company network and goes from there. So, you know, cyber hygiene starts really at the at the, at the lowest level of, of Americans not clicking on links and videos and or using things like TikTok to avoid having their their system infected, and then that that infection spreads. And we, we saw that with the Solar Winds case, the, the the massive hack that took place right at the end of our administration. I, I was actually on a, a trip to Europe working on the transition, and had to come home from that trip. 
to, to deal with the uh, the cyber attack, but it, it had gotten into thousands and thousands of networks. And it, of course, it originated with one one fishing expedition. So it really, the, the, the best cyber defense is the individual American being careful about what they what they do and, and what they click on. Yeah, you made me think that there was just one thing we could just call it the all better app. Like you just click on it and go all better. <laughs> <laughs> that would, that that would be, be awesome, right? It's, it's going to be okay, app. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so part of this challenge we've had specifically in Washington recently is some of the proposed legislation that would require companies to actually disable part of their security by design by bringing potential vulnerabilities into the process. Uh, and I, I get the sense that this legislation just has not been carefully thought about where how users are used to being protected kind of from the get-go. So one of the challenges, you know, I love technology because it's plug and play, but the plug and play means that we just think we plug and play and we go and we don't have to think about, like we were talking about all the information that, that flows off of it. But this legislation demands that all mobile operating systems be made open for any developer to drop an application or an app onto. So what you were just discussing about the challenges of malware, the, the Jeff Bezos here's a, you know going to give you a thousand dollar credit, but you just need to click on this link. Um, those are the kind of things that are going to actually become more prevalent, I think, if this legislation passes. And I don't think that was their intent. We just, me and my colleagues, who've spent a lot of time trying to explain that there's a very real problem with both privacy and security by design for consumers being taken away by this legislation. There's just a gap of an understanding with the uh, the legislators. And I know you spoke about that this, I think this spring over at another think tank about we don't need to be, I mean, big big tech has its challenges. People are kind of pissed at it for a couple of different reasons, not all the same ones, but you know, we need, we need to not be, take that anger and turn it into um, something that our adversaries can use against us by allowing them to drop our guard, I think is the way I think about it. No, you're right. And look, you know, it's tough to defend big tech these days, right? Everyone's upset with big tech. The, the Democrats don't like it because the companies, in their view, have gotten too big, too monopolistic. And, and you know, the, from the left, they always like to break up companies and, and, and have the government get involved in the market. And, you know, we, we saw this with AT&T and uh, other examples in the past. And they also are concerned, but they don't, they don't like some of the freedom of speech that you have on, on uh, the, these platforms. And then on the conservative side, you know, the conservatives are incensed at the, the algorithms that deplatform and and uh, and hide conservative comments. They 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 hate the censorship. They hate the fact that President Trump, you know, whatever people think about the president, good or bad, that he that the, the former president of the United States is not allowed to, to post on Twitter or, or Facebook. And so no one's happy with big tech. And so the, the the response though has been a very blunt instrument. And you laid it out. It's either to to break up the companies. And there are problems with that because it goes to our ability to do the the esoteric research on things like you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and quantum that these these companies of scale can do to keep us in the ballgame with the, the Chinese. Or number two, that we open everything up so that any Chinese or Russian app designer or Iranian app designer can have total access to our phones. And the supposed safeguards that were put in by the amendments don't work. You're, you're basically telling, you know, there are a couple of different things. One is that, that the app stores of Google and Apple have to carry every app that's designed with, without vetting and without the ability of those companies to say, hey, this is not a good idea. We don't want this app on our phones because it's, it's you know, it could be used for, for spying or for p- obtaining people's personal information. And it might not just be the Chinese or the Russians. It may be corporations that are seeking to, to obtain our medical, our medical data or our personal and private data that, that we don't want to expose. So, so taking away that security 
uh, really doesn't make any sense. Breaking up the companies doesn't make any sense. Right now, 10 of the big, 20 biggest tech companies in the world are based in Beijing. And what I tell my friends who are upset about tech, and I, I understand their, their concern, do we really want big tech run from Beijing? Or would we rather have it here in Silicon Valley or Austin or Provo or Boston or Boulder, Miami, where we can regulate it if necessary, and we can use a scalpel to deal with some of these, these issues that have people upset, but, but either breaking up the companies or, or opening them up to the Chinese, uh, th- those are, are two very blunt instruments that, that both end badly for the United States. You have also talked about um, spectrum and 5G and the importance of 5G and also thinking about where the equipment comes that creates all the, the magic of 5G. And this has been an interesting discussion because I think we're starting to see the results of it that people will actually concur that the decisions by the Trump administration to cleave off a lot of specific technology and, and technology intelligence to China really has started a hit at Huawei. I just I think it's good that we're finally seeing the results because a lot of people are like, oh, that's just hegemony. And, you know, you just don't you know, they're they're fine. And you're like, no, there there is really a reason why we want to, you know, keep these guys in check. Well, Shane, when I first came into office, I I was briefed very early on on the issue. And and people said, oh, Huawei's got the market. They they control the whole 5G uh, market. We're going to have to figure out some sort of encryption uh, method to get around it because the Chinese will, of course, suck up all the data. And before it would have been too much. Like you think of all the old Stasi files that were in the warehouses, there was too much information for the Stasi to go through in East Germany. But with, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, the Chinese could hoover up everybody's data all over the world, you know, put up in a cloud and then, then sort it and, and, and come up with all kinds of advantages. And I just felt that can't be, and we have to stop it. The free world has to stand up to Huawei. And, and again, we were told it was a fool's errand. We actually succeeded. We got to start with Japan and Australia and then, Italy and eventually the UK came along and and we stopped Huawei and in fact we I felt like I was the biggest unpaid spokesman for Nokia or Ericsson in the world because we didn't have an Amer- at the time we didn't have an American substitute for Huawei so there were some European and some South Korean uh, uh, companies that, that were able to provide the the equipment to our allies uh, the America's gotten in the game with with some really innovative things from companies like Microsoft and Dell and. Uh, some cloud computing and, and software options for 5G. And so we're back in the game and, and we're, we're going to protect our networks. But we, I, I just felt, and the president felt, that you couldn't allow the Chinese to have a, a, an entire monopoly on, on 5G. Now, you asked a good question about it, and I think we were successful there. And, and it was against all odds. And, and there were a lot of people involved in that. Mike Pompeo, our former Secretary of State, uh, he worked with a, an undersecretary named Keith Kroc, who did a great job on this issue. Uh, my team at the NSC was involved in constant diplomacy uh, on these issues. So uh, Alex Gray, my chief of staff, Matt Pottinger, my, my uh, deputy, people were, this was an all hands on deck. And it showed that when America focuses and is willing to put leadership in from the very top from the president, and the, and the president made a lot of calls to foreign leaders on these, this, these issues. Uh, so so I, I think it showed that we can still move the needle. And this was, this was worth doing. Number two, you mentioned spectrum. We've got to open up more spectrum because if we don't open more spectrum here in America, you're not going to have manufacturers choosing to manufacture devices here and taking advantage of this market. And again, we'll seed that manufacturing to the Chinese or, or other countries. And so the more spectrum we can open up here, you know, the, the, the more 5G we'll have. Uh, the Chinese have opened up a lot more spectrum in China than we have here. And, you know, people here are concerned. You've got the DODs concerned about some spectrum. You've got... Uh, uh, the FAA concerned about spectrum, but we, we need to figure out how to safely open up spectrum 
We need to do it quickly. And then that will allow Americans to have the advantage of 5G all over the country. We've got to do it in a way so that rural America gets spectrum and not just, you know, New York and San Francisco and LA and Chicago, but that the Amer- all Americans benefit from it. And, and then that will open up massive markets. And it goes back to your, your first question about the CHIPS Act and American manufacturing. When there's a big market here, folks will manufacture here and we can, we can start building the devices again. That was a good leap of faith that a lot of people had to go away from a known pipeline and then create the, you know, the thought around the open radio access network ORAN uh, to say, okay, we can find a way to build this in the component parts. And while that a lot of people are like, the the symmetry isn't there. And I mean, I admit it's always easier if you use all one company's things, they tend to like like each other better. I think about Bluetooth when I say that. Uh, But they've, I think they've done a very elegant solution set because of software defined networking and and you know, just the difference in the way the networks operate now, white boxing, that we're we're seeing a very good migration over to, you know, Nokia and, and Ericsson, I'm sure appreciate you being a great spokesperson for them, but it's also <laughs> it's it's opened a good floodgate for um, other companies to come into this space right now when we're seeing, you know, the the need for all that equipment as well as um, I think that one of the bigger challenges right now is, is labor force. Again, to your point about, you know, we talk about chips, we we need to get people that are understanding how to get up and get this equipment going and and how to, you know, put it all in operations. So we can, you know, keep, keep, keep the internet going smarter and faster because we, we all think we need it to be faster, even though it's, it's pretty darn fast, I think. So another part of this is, is the, and you guys seem to have found that middle, you know, kind of way to thread the needle on when should the government go beyond warning about types of activity and applications and, you know, really kind of put a policy enforcement in. You mentioned the um, some of the pipeline issues. I think that's always been a challenge with some of the industry players is knowing, you know, are they are do, are they at the compliance level they need? Are we safe? Are the you know is there anything the network operators need to be doing? Is we're seeing more and more things attached to the internet and like who has the responsibility on this? Do you think the government's getting a better vision in this with now with CISA and DHS and the White House getting collaboration within the industries? You know, I, I think so. I think for a long time the tech industry felt that uh, they they were you know, they, they didn't belong to a country. Yeah, they, they, they were, the internet was for everybody. It was a worldwide phenomenon. This was going to be something kind of apart from the government and, and apart from the country in which they, were, they, they, they operated in. And, and I, I think that was, you know, in some ways it was a great idea when you thought the, the internet would be wide open worldwide. And we've seen that the, the internet's not wide open. It's, it's very closed in China. It's very closed in Russia and Iran. They, you know, take the internet up and down depending on the level of protests and dissent, dissent in the country. And, and I think our American tech manufacturers have also realized that the Chinese have stolen them blind. I mean, Chris, Chris Ray gave a great talk, the current director of the FBI. We gave a series of talks over the summer. I talked about the Marxist-Leninist ideology of the CCP. Uh, Chris Ray talked about the theft. And he said that the, the IP theft by China and the Communist Party of China from the United States has been the biggest transfer of human wealth in history. That's a pretty astounding statement. I, I, yep. it, immediately, it immediately made me think of, for, for those of you that your listeners have been to Rome, there's a column called Trajan's Column in, in one of the squares. And, and on the column, it's, it's, it celebrates the, the Roman emperor's defeat of Dacia, which is kind of now modern-day Romania area. And it shows all the wagons of the loot that the Roman soldiers are bringing back. And, uh, and I thought somebody's going to put a tower up to... Uh, to the Chinese Communist Party and, and its leaders, especially Xi Jinping, you know, showing all the loot and all the money that was that was literally, literally pillaged from America, you know, not brought over in carts, but brought over in electrons. 
And when, when you think about this theft, how pernicious it is, I mean, put aside the national security issues because there's all kinds of theft of, uh, of our, our secrets and, and what our planes look like and, and the Chinese to try, try their best to replicate them. But you think about just average products. When the Chinese steal an inventor's IP or innovations, the inventor first loses the license fees, right? The, the patent fees or the, the trademark fees or whatever the, the income stream is. But then the Chinese have taken that technology. They take it back to, to China. They recreate the product. They, they sell it, then dump it back here at a discount and put the original business out of business. So now the, the inventor's lost the royalty fees, but more importantly, he's lost his entire business or she's lost her entire business because the Chinese have, have, are now dumping that product at uh, sub-manufacturing price bases to, to put the American company out of business. So not, not only do we lose the, the revenue and the, the, the wealth from the innovation, but we lose the ability to even manufacture it here and then it migrates to China and then that, that industry is dead in America. It's an incredible uh, story that, that someone's going to tell in a movie someday that, uh, or in a, in a book. A lot of people have written about it, but someone's going to tell the whole story and it's, it's, it's quite astounding. Yeah. And it starts with our whole idea of trying to spread democracy, right? It's, it was the idea that if, if we made people more like the United States, they would follow along in our path of thought. And what we did is we gave them tools to, in some cases, just harden their ability to stay a, a socialist nation. I mean, it was um, so naive, right? We thought that if we turned the other cheek, if we, if we forgot about what happened to Tibet, and remember, you know, the Dalai Lama used to be a cause celebrating. Now Richard Gere can't get a, a, a job in Hollywood because he's, he's a man of principle who's stuck with the Dalai Lama. But we turned our, our blind eye to Tibet. We turned a blind eye to the genocide that's taking place in Xinjiang. We turned a blind eye to Hong Kong and the extinguishing of democracy there. We turned a blind eye to the intellectual property theft. We turned a blind eye to the espionage. And the idea was if we, if we turn the other cheek on all of these things and we just let the Chinese get rich at our expense, uh, we, you know, we turned a blind eye to their climate, the disaster. They polluted the entire Pacific is full of Chinese plastic. They open a coal factory every, a coal plant every month and pollute the environment. If we just turn our other cheek on all of those things, they'll get rich. And once they get rich, they'll become more like us. What we found is they've gotten rich and they've used it to do the most massive military buildup we've seen since, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm building the Craig's Marine prior to World War One, And, uh, and they've, they've made him look like a piker. And so we, we've got to we've got to get realistic and realize that, that we made a mistake under Republican and Democrat administrations, hoping that it. As you pointed out, Shane, that uh, if we allowed the Chinese to do all this, they, they'd get wealthy and they'd become Democrats and we'd all live happily ever after. And, and unfortunately, the, the opposite occurred. I think, yeah, democracy, I don't know. Sure, they, they may become Democrats. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very interesting dynamic. And I uh, want to thank you for all the time I know you have done in your past. And I, you know, in this space, because you have to be able to put the puzzle pieces together. Otherwise, it's easy to get run over quickly. So give us an idea of um, your thoughts on kind of what's on the horizon and what we should be thinking about going forward. Well, so we've, we've talked about some of the bad news uh, out there, but let, let me end on a, on a positive note. I'm extraordinarily optimistic about the United States of America, and I, I think that we're going to have another American century. I think at the end of the day, notwithstanding the challenges that we face here at home, and they're, they're, they're vast uh, and we're polarized, but I, I'm confident that there, there's nowhere in the world that people can innovate and, and, and build and, uh, and manufacture like the United States of America. And we're going to have a great... Uh, we're gonna have a great future. We got to we got to get some policy choices right. I mean, no, no one can defeat us. We can only defeat ourselves. And so we got to we got to make sure we're doing the, the right thing on the policy front. Uh, 
And we're starting to do some of those things. And then we've got to do others. We've got to get back to energy independence and we've got to get back to a peace or strength posture. But we have, we have tremendous platforms coming out with the military that will put us in a, in a very advantageous position. Uh, we've got tremendous research going on in, in quantum and AI and you know, simulations and, uh, and machine learning that, and chip making and design. We're not manufacturing it well, but the chip making and design, no one can touch. So, so we have tremendous advantages as a country. And, and when you think about it, that's why people want to come here. And look, I live in California. I'm talking to you from California. And as bad as things are in California, you don't see people climbing in the wheel well of planes taking off from LAX to try and get out of California. You don't see, right. uh, you don't see people rushing to the border. <laughs> you know, sometimes you wonder with, the, with some of Gavin Newsom's policies why they aren't rushing to the Mexican border. But uh, people are coming over the border the other way. When you look at the Chinese Communist Party, half their central committee has bug out homes in places like San Marino, California, and Seattle, Washington, and Vancouver, you know, Canada, our neighbors to the north. Everyone wants to be here. And so that's a tremendous advantage. And we've got to, we've got to leverage that advantage to make sure that, that the next century is a century that's, that's defined by freedom and liberty and individual rights and the rule of law. Yeah. And not by these authoritarian regimes that are maybe a little bit more nimble. They, they may be able to do things faster. But at the end of the day, I don't think they can match the innovation because of their societies that, that we'll have here in America and our, and our Western allies in, in Japan. So I, I, I'm bullish. I think we got to we got to you know get on it. We got to do things like the Chips Act. We got to do more shipbuilding here. We got to get our hypersonics deployed and 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 fielded on the military front. We got to stay ahead on the on the tech race. We got to make sure that you know we we, we get spectrum released for 5G. So there, there's a, there's a lot to do. We've got to protect our tech companies, but at the same time make them more responsive to uh, to concerns of everyday Americans here, including censorship on the right. Uh, but I, but I think if we get those things right, and I think we can. Uh, that we've got a very bright future here in the United States. Well, thank you for the positive reminder of our to-do list. <laughs> I think we've, we've, we've had a lot of those in our sites and it sounds like we need to just keep going. So I really, really appreciate your time today. And thank you so much for being a guest on Explain to Shane. Thank, thank you, Shane. God bless you. And God bless America. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.